Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 129 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we're really tired. There's a lot of smoke in the air and a lot of smoke on the internet, too. I was gonna ask you how are you doing in the smoke like because I I have virtually no understanding of California geography so I have no idea if you're like immersed in smoke right now or if you're living on Mars or what's happening so well the weird thing is so it's it's been very smoky and ashy like I walked out to my car yesterday and there was this very thin layer of ash all over it and like I had to use my windshield wipers um and clean off my windshield to be able to see to drive that kind of thing and um i live about 45 miles from the nearest fire so that's how bad the air is just Mm -hmm. everywhere right now there's so many fires and so much smoke and just so much gunk and crap in the air right now that even if you're very far away from the actual danger zone and evacuations and things it's just bad like I have we had a group that was supposed to go on a hike today we had to cancel it because the air quality is so bad we just really Mm -hmm. can't be outside right now so yeah yeah that's what's that's what's happening (laughs) it's uh at least it's yeah at least it's cooler this week but then it's kind of one of those things where it's like well it's cooler because of the smoke causing the cloud cover and the sun can't get through so I think (laughs) this is how ice ages start um maybe not a good thing um anyway yeah but how are you Lauren (laughs) fun times uh it is a comfortable 72 degrees in upstate New York very nice and sunny out um yeah I'm doing fine doing fine just carrying on trying to not totally lose my shit at stupid men that's just my but that's my usual state of being really so you know I can't complain too much yeah, I mean that's just life at this point. It is so. exist. It is the existence of of just being a woman, and particularly if you are ever a woman on the internet, like yes, it's just. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. <laughs> well, speaking of women that are awesome and are sadly no longer with us, Lauren, will you please talk to us a little bit about Diana Rigg, who sadly passed away this week? Yeah, this this one was really surprising to me. I mean, um, so Honor, Honor Blackman, who's uh, one of the other women who appeared on the Avengers, uh, died not that long ago, actually, and she was 92. Um, Diana Rigg was 82. And uh, I guess that she had been sick. Um, she'd been diagnosed with cancer in March, and uh, obviously it was, not, it was not a cancer that she could recover from. And so she passed away um, just recently, just a couple days ago. And this one hit me, you know, we were talking the other week when, um, when Chadwick Bosman passed about, you know, the celebrities that 
that their deaths affect us in a really personal way. And this, this one definitely affected me in a personal way. Um, first of all, just because I, I think that anyone who's ever seen Diana Reagan, anything like a television show, a movie, you know, on stage, if you've had the good, the good fortune to see her on stage, um, she really was just a presence. Like she was one of those actresses who commanded the screen. She had such a distinctive voice, such a distinctive like attitude. Um, and she was always a real pleasure to watch, whether she was doing a dramatic role or a comedic role. Um, and, and for me, she, uh, her performance in the Avengers was, was very important to my life. Uh, and um, one of the things that I actually really liked was the number of people who just reacted. And I didn't, I honestly didn't expect people to, to have such a connection to her, but obviously a lot of people did, at least on, on Twitter and in newspapers and um, across social media. There were a lot of people who were talking about her and talking about um, how sort of surprising it was to know that she's no longer with us, but also like how formative she was for a lot of people uh, and I think I think that that was really special and it was really nice to see so I I adore her I really encourage people you know one of the one of the silver linings I guess I hate to put it that way but one of the silver linings when um when a celebrity dies is that is that very often people become interested in their work again um, so I really encourage people to go and watch The Avengers. It is, you can watch it on Amazon right now. Um, there are also episodes on other streaming platforms that, uh, you know, Lionsgate doesn't want you to know about. <laughs> but, but so you can watch, and particularly the Emma Peel series, the two, the two seasons of The Avengers that she did, those are really widely available. Like it's harder to find the, the series that Honor Blackman did. Um, but so the, the two seasons that Diana Rigg did, she is wonderful in them. Her and Patrick McNee are great together. So much fun, so funny, so like very groundbreaking in terms of the representation of women and the representation of gender relations. Um, one of the awesome things that the Avengers did was that it, it put a male character and a female character on very equal footing. And it allowed her to save him and it allowed like her to kind of express herself um, in, in ways that women just weren't allowed to do generally on television in that period. And quite honestly, a lot of the time women still aren't allowed to do, uh, especially in relationship to men. So it's, it's a great show. I love it. And I, I do encourage people to see it. Also, there are a number of her films that are still available. So like check out Theater of Blood with Vincent Price, which is just one of my favorite horror films. Um, it is so bizarre and it, it is, it is a pleasure just to watch Diana Rigg and Vincent Price, like, do the worst hammy Shakespeare you have <laughs> ever heard and, and then murder people. Like, that is what happens in this movie. It is so good. Uh, and then one of my other favorites is The Assassination Bureau, uh, the, uh which is a film that she did with Oliver Reed in, I think, 68, 69, so it was, um, fairly close to after she did the Avengers and James Bond, et cetera. Um, and, and again, and it's just a very light sort of steampunk style uh, film that in, in which, again, Diana Rigg and Oliver Reed like run around Europe killing people. Uh, and it's awesome. So I really, I really recommend, like she is, she's a fantastic actress. There's so much stuff that you can watch of hers, both on tele, both like from television shows and films. 
Um, she's so much more than Alina Terrell. Like I, I don't fault anyone for loving her in that, but also she had a very long career. So please try to watch some of her <laughs> other stuff. So I yeah. Mean, I will say that she was one of the best parts of Game of Thrones, especially in season seven. She had the most memorable, well, she had one of the most memorable lines of the entire show. But she got that because she was amazing and she did have such a long and, and incredible career. Um, my mom posted on Facebook, I didn't even talk to her about this. And I was really like, what? My mom said, rest in peace, Diana Rigg. I'll remember you best as Emma Peel from the Avengers and the lady who got James Bond to the altar on Her Majesty's Secret Service. You mentioned the Avengers to me, and this is who I think of. Then I pause and say, oh, you mean Thor, Captain America, and those guys. And I was just like, wait, I never heard you talk about, why did you not introduce me to this show? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, it, it's, such a, it's such a good show. It's, uh, I'm honestly angry that I had not watched, I didn't watch it until I was in my mid-20s, and, and I was like, why did no one tell me about this? How dare you? How dare you not show me this show? It's so mean and, and rude and deliberate. <laughs> it really is. It really is. And, uh, and she's great in it. You know, she had a very kind of fraught relationship with the show. Um, it was one of her first big roles outside of, um, outside of stage. And she did not have an always great experience on that, although she, she absolutely adored Patrick McNee and, uh, and talked about, like, she badmouths pretty much everyone on the show in like interviews except for him. Like whenever it comes to him, she's just like, she was always just like, oh, he's the most wonderful man on the, in the world. Like he's lovely. I love him. Um, so, you know, when Diana Rigg likes you and is, is like unwilling to say anything bad about you, I think that that says something. But, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I think she's, she's really going to be missed. And I'm, I'm, I'm sad that she is not with us. So, yeah, it's very sad news. So thank you for sharing your, your thoughts yeah. um totally completely changing gears <laughs> <laughs> we got a trailer for dune this week yeah. which i did not see uh i watched it but i didn't see it <laughs> <laughs> um yeah let, let's talk about the dune trailer what were your thoughts on the dune trailer line oh my god um I've said before that I am not enthused about this film. I really love the book and I am really sad. First of all, David Lynch's Dune is just so out there. Like I, I encourage people to watch it just because it's like, this has nothing to do with Dune. Even so David I, Lynch does not encourage anybody to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I love it. It has nothing to do with Dune. It's like, what is happening? Um... <laughs> And, and I've actually heard good things. There's a mini-series that's, I guess, sort of low-budget, but there's a mini-series of Dune. So I, I, I'm not excited about Villeneuve, who has no understanding of nuance, who has no understanding of issues of racism, or which, about which Dune is, is, there's a major issue about race in Dune, and about, in, you know, the indigenous people versus the, you know, basically white people, the Europeans, the imperialists. Uh, and I particularly do not trust Vienna to manage to actually show the nuance of the women in this in this story. Um, and yeah, it would be really nice if you could actually see what's happening in a trailer. <laughs> that would be fun. Um, 
this is like the third trailer I've seen this year that I'm like, I can't, I don't actually know what's going on yeah. because it's so fucking dark. <laughs> someone, someone on Twitter posted, there's a giant asshole in that trailer and someone else was like, Timothy Chalamet's not an asshole. And then they posted a picture of the worm coming up out of the sand. And it kind of does look like just an asshole. Well, I did see a number of people who are like, you know, Vianna has been like, oh, we spent like a year and a half designing the worm. And I was just like, did you really? Did you though? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I, so in general, I don't, I don't want to judge an entire movie based on a trailer because so often I end up being completely off. Yeah, yeah, of course. In either direction. I get really excited for a movie based on the trailer and then it's terrible. Or I think a movie is going to be awful and then I actually end up really liking it. Um, But I do think that there are some things that line up with what we've already heard about where this movie is headed um we had that conversation a couple months ago about them completely changing a character um to be more inclusive and thereby totally misunderstanding or at least altering what that character is supposed to be about so yeah i have no idea i'm still flummoxed by how they're going to deal with that like what that is even going to look like because that that character almost needs to be a white man in order for the the um the commentary to even make sense the critique that is inherent in the character yeah yeah and And i I just don't know yeah mm -hmm. well and that's the thing it's like how much are they changing this story to make it just fit into whatever they feel like telling you know and and there is and this is actually going to lead us really well into the next conversation but there is a difference between diversity for the sake of diversity and diversity because it it improves and adds to the story that you're trying to tell and just again not to relitigate that argument because we have not seen the movie but if it's just like well we need another female character first of all the movie or the book is full of female characters but um if, if it's just about like, well, we want to change this up to make the cast more diverse because they already have a bunch of macho men in it, um, then that's a total, that's not the reason for diversity. That's not the right type of diversity. That is tokenism at that point. That, that feels like, at least it feels like it, you know, it feels like we don't really know what we're doing and once again white men making decisions that seem like a good idea to them on paper but don't really accomplish what they think they're trying to accomplish well yeah i I think that it it comes back to this whole like a certain concept of um uh like you're saying of the of the way that diversity should work versus the way that diversity can work. And one of the issues that we've had with Vienna before, and, and he, he was famous for it with Sicario, is that he switched a male character to a female character. It's like, okay, that's, you know, fine. We're, we're going to, we're going to kind of diversify this a little bit, but it doesn't make a difference. Like there's no real inherent meaning to this character now being female. Um, and like I say, in, with the particular character in Dune that he's chosen to, to both gender and race swap. Right. 
um, there's there's an issue that I can see. And again, it, it might he might be able to play it off really interestingly, and it could it could develop an interesting conversation. But one of the issues is that basically this this character is a white male anthropologist who studies the indigenous culture, and in studying the indigenous culture, he's he and I'm going to put quotation marks around this. He goes native, right? He becomes obsessed basically with the indigenous culture and tries to become one of them. And that's sort of the point of his character is that he's an imperialist who then becomes enamored of this romanticized version of the indigenous culture. Swapping that to a black woman creates all kinds of, of question marks because, because it, 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 at least, to a certain degree at least, it's gonna remove the talons of the critique, which is that white men tend to, you know, go into this culture that they're, that they are colonizing essentially, and then turn around and be like, well, actually we're gonna romanticize it and treat it as this, this romantic aspirational concept, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just don't know how, how it will play having a black woman in that same position, if they even use the same kind of storyline, which I'm not convinced that they're going to. Um, but yeah, you have to, there has to be meaning, a meaning behind it. You know, if, uh, if you're gonna, it's kind of like when you gender swap Shakespeare, when you race swap Shakespeare, that can produce some really interesting dialogues. But sometimes you can just be like, well, this does, now this just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, I saw a production of Othello <laughs> that, that has a, um, that had a, 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 a Latinx man playing Othello but included all of the racist language that Iago uses. And it was very confusing because it just didn't feel like any of the racist language applied in the way that it does if you have a black man playing Othello. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and, and it was just, it was very weird. So it was like, I, I think I know what you're going for, but I don't think that it's working. <laughs> yeah, it's a very fine balance. Like, it's incredibly difficult to do what Lin-Manuel Miranda did with Hamilton, for example, where because you have black men playing the role of these old white slave owners, the things that they're saying take on a different weight um, versus just, oh, well, we're just going to have a black guy play Thomas Jefferson just for no reason. Like there were particular decisions behind that and it, it mattered but yeah if you're just doing if you're just changing a race or a gender just to do it just to make yourself feel better then that is not the point that's missing the point and it actually causes you more problems but this is also Denis Villeneuve who did Arrival and Blade Runner 2049 and keeps getting praise because his movies have women in major roles and Nobody seems to notice that those female characters aren't great and uh, that they have a lot of problems. So, but you know, his movies are big and expensive, so they must be amazing. Yeah, I'm not, I like the cast of Dune, but I, I am not, I'm very concerned. I'm definitely going to see it probably. Definitely probably going to see it. Well, you're going to go <laughs> watch it. Who knows if you'll see it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if that trailer is any indication, which why wouldn't it be? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no. We're not going to be able to see half the movie. No. Nope. Just be like, oh, that's great. What's happening? <laughs> exactly. It's, just, it's like, there's the worm. Where? 
Oh, that like gray thing in the distance? Okay, all right. <laughs> Against the rest of the gray, because God, that is a gray trailer. Like, oh, it looked really like orangish to me. It, it was kind of this like hazy orangish dark, like, yeah. Yeah, there's no, there's no like muddy. No, it looked really muddy. That's a good description. There's no contrast. Like, yeah. it's not, you know, and, and again, and you're talking about a desert planet, right? So, but even then, I mean, watch Lawrence of Arabia. There are a lot of colors that you can get out of the desert. Mm -hmm. The desert is a very complicated space. It doesn't just have to be like dust. <laughs> right. Well, and don't the people on Arrakis, don't they have like super crazy blue eyes? Uh, yeah, they're supposed to. The more that you consume, the more that you're around and the more that you consume spice, which is the the, the thing that they're mining, yeah. basically. The, the reason why Dune is such an important place. Uh, then you begin to get blue, yeah, like bright blue eyes, which, again... And I didn't again, see any of that in the trailer. Yeah, I have no clue if they're even going to do that. Um, yeah. gra granted, the way that the David Lynch movie did it was so bizarre. <laughs> but... You know, it was effective. I was like, ah, their eyes are now very blue. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah, it was like there were little things that I was looking for that, and granted I only read half of the book, but, um, but yeah, there were little things I was just like, uh, I, don't, I think he only read half the book too. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> but speaking of diversity, <laughs> um, this week, the internet exploded because the Oscars finally back. So back in July, they said that they were going to be making some changes. They announced a couple of new initiatives. They announced Academy Aperture 2025 um, and said, hey, and that's not all. There's more to come. Well, this week they announced something else that's part of their, um, their, in, it's like a, sequence of initiatives that they're launching and so they announced the next phase which changes the requirement for best picture eligibility for the oscars and that means that beginning in 2025 um so for the 2024 awards year um in order to be eligible for best picture um they have to meet some new standards and We'll talk specifically about those standards in a minute, but um, it's really interesting to see uh, the way that people have have accepted this and have not accepted this. Um, and also the arguments that some people made that, oh, well, if you go back in time, it doesn't change anything and every single movie that has ever been nominated for Best Picture would still be nominated. And I'm like, oh don't think that's true but um anyway uh this is a step this does not change the uh eligibility for any category except for best picture i think it's important to note that and um and they don't have to hit all of these so let's talk a little bit about what the standards are they have to hit two out of four and there are a lot of sub uh, categories of that. So um, the first one is standard A on screen represent. Oh, by the way, I also want to say that this lines up pretty much almost exactly with what BAFTA adopted. They announced theirs in 2016 and they 
implemented it this past year. So this was the first year that they had the same standards. They do they did not expand their best picture, best film lineup. They still only have five, but um, but they did include um, a lot of these standards themselves. And um, so we'll talk about how some of the movies still were eligible. Um, all right, so sorry, standard A on-screen representation, themes, and narratives. Now, to achieve standard A, a film has to meet one of the following, and there are a couple of different options to meet that criteria, there are three. Um, lead or su significant supporting actors. So at least one of your leads has to be um, from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group or significant supporting actors. So for example, um, uh, what's the movie? I just went blank. <laughs> oh no, are you there? I'm here. I'm here. What movie are you thinking of? But I don't know I'm what movie you're thinking. Think I'm trying <laughs> to like... think of any movie. <laughs> uh, Dune. I don't know. Okay, what yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Dune. So for example, Dune, Timothy Chalamet is the lead of Dune, but then like Zendaya is mm -hmm. a significant supporting character. And yeah, so she, she would meet the criteria. Yes, so because of that, she would she would meet the criteria of that. Um, <laughs> yes, sorry. I'm, sorry. No, I'm, still, I, I'm still giggling. <laughs> I'm just like, Lauren, Lauren, give me a movie. <laughs> I was just like, I... I... <laughs> I just, yeah, like, uh, my brain is dead. My brain is dead. All right, um, so that's... That's the first one. Um, the second option is the general ensemble cast would be at least 30% of all the actors in secondary and more minor roles are from at least two of the following underrepresented groups. And this is important because the underrepresented groups are women, racial and ethnic groups, LGBTQ, people with disabilities. That could be cognitive, physical, deaf, hard of hearing, um, and you only have to have 30% of, of the actors, um, the, the second tier and the more minor roles in those groups. But a lot of people are like, oh, well, see, so any movie with a bunch of women in it qualifies. No, no, <laughs> that's not the case. Because what is great about all of these standards is that they include components where you have to include other groups as well so like for example the first stand the first part of the standard one of the lead or significant supporting actors it's not women they have to come from a racial group or an ethnic group and with the general ensemble cast it has to be at least two groups so not just women but women of color um lgbtq characters those those kinds of they they thought about that they thought that through and this is the thing so a lot of people keep um keep complaining about some of the standards not going far enough, which I, I agree. I think that they could go farther, but I think this is a start. And I think that people keep missing the fact that it's not just, oh, just put more white women in your movie and you're good, because that's not the case. They've really thought that through. And so I appreciate that. Um, the third option for standard A is about the main storyline and subject matter. And this is where things do get a little bit more um, murky, but what is your story about? Who is the movie about? And you can 
you can satisfy this requirement if the film is centered on an underrepresented group, women, racial and ethnic groups, LGBTQ, uh, and people with disabilities. Um, and so each of the categories, each of the standards has those same basic uh, requirements to them, but each standard is about a different part of the process of making the film. So then standard B is the creative leadership and project team. That's not who's on the screen, that's who is making the movie. So the options for meeting these criteria have to do with like who's directing it, who is the casting director, the cinematographer, the composer, the costume designers, all those different jobs behind the scenes to make the movie. Um, they, you have to have at least two people from, like two creative positions have to come from those groups that we've already talked about. But you also can't just have white women. At least one of those two positions has to come from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group. So if you look at the standards really closely, you're seeing this all along. Like the point isn't just more opportunities for women, which I think is is why I'm really glad about this. So yeah, so standard B, just different options for film crew, film composition, uh, the crew composition. Standard C is industry access and opportunities. And this is things like paid apprenticeships and internships to get people learning how to make the movie, training opportunities, things like that. And then standard D is audience development, which is representation in marketing, publicity, and distribution. And this is one that I got into a couple of arguments with people. Accidentally, I wasn't trying to argue with people and tell them they were dumb, but you know, sometimes it just happens. But, um, this is where a lot of people just dismissed it and said, well, most of the publicity teams that I work with are all women. I'm like, okay, but the standard actually says that they have to have, the company has to have multiple, multiple in-house senior executives, not just like who's on the publicity team, but who's running that whole division of the studio or the, or the company. And they can't just be women. They have to come from a variety of groups. So, because um, it even says, must include individuals from underrepresented racial or ethnic groups. So there you go. That's a rundown of what the standards are. And then we can talk about what's good and what's not good about these. Lauren, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I think I was with a lot of people in the sense that I was confused. Uh, and, and one of the issues that I had with the way that kind of the Academy broke this down is that it was really, it's really confusing. Like I, I, so I had to read through those standards several times before I was like, okay, I think I get what they're doing. Uh, I can still see places where it can be manipulated mm -hmm. and, and I'm certain that there are productions that are going to do that. I, I do think that, you know, and we talked about this before offline, that this is a step. It's not, it's not a, a kind of cure-all for uh, all of the issues that Hollywood is having. And it, and it is only in relationship to the best picture. That being said, best picture very often gets the most attention. Mm -hmm. um, at least when we're talking about uh, um, the Oscar race and then also what wins best picture. So Parasite winning, Green Book winning, things like that. Um, it, you know, reading through some of this, you're kind of like, well, this feels like these should be fairly easy criteria to meet which, you know, we've talked about before. 
uh, as you know, something like the Betschel test is, is intended to be very easy to meet. And even then people struggle with it and people have difficulty doing it. So I, I'm kind of, yeah, so I agree that, I, that this is a good step. This is a move in the right direction. And hopefully we'll also, because companies are production teams, et cetera, are now gonna have to be considering these things because there are a lot of films that are aspiring to, for best picture um, nominations, uh, that this can actually begin to change the makeup of production teams generally, because they're going to, they're going to be paying more attention to who they're hiring and who's in positions of leadership, who's in positions of, of you know, being seen on camera, off camera, all of that. So it seems like it's a good thing. It's not the final step. Um, and, and I can definitely see where some of these criteria are going to be mucked around with, um, and that people are going to be in to say, well, this is an LGBTQ film. It's just like, well, no, you, it's not actually, you know, and, and where do you begin to interpret that and say like, um, that, uh, that a particular film is LGBTQ because there's an implication of a possibility of a relationship between two characters or something like that. Um, so hopefully what this will lead to will be more diversity in storytelling and more diversity both in front of and behind the camera. Uh, I, you know, I think that people, people are gonna pitch a fit regardless of like anything. <laughs> so it's kind of like, all right, fine. Yes, there's always gonna be this cadre of people that are going to throw a fit about these kinds of things. And, um, but at the same time, I think that we should pay attention to those people who are saying, okay, this looks good, but I have concerns. Yeah. Uh, and I've definitely seen some legitimate concerns, people saying like, okay, but you know, how are we, how are we going to solve for the issues of how we hire women, how we hire men, um, you know, how you classify, you know, how do you classify people? There is going to, this is going to result, unfortunately, and, there's, and this isn't the fault of the standards. This is going to result in um, people making comments and critics making comments about diversity hires which is going to happen anyways, you know, it's there, there's always just like, oh, this, she only got that gig because she's a woman. She only got that gig because she's black, et cetera. Um, you know, fine. That's the kind of thing that, uh, that anyone from an underrepresented group always has to face. Uh, and you just got to keep on pushing back against idiots. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, I think that there are obviously there are some issues when any time that people try to implement something new that is intended to be more inclusive um but i think that and obviously this doesn't fix the industry it's not trying to fix the industry what i think the academy is doing here is they're trying to force the industry to fix itself and the the reason I say that, and I think the way that they're doing that, is it's not even just about who is on screen or who is, you know, in the back designing the costumes. It's it's about those things, but it's also about who's responsible for uh, getting this movie out to the public. One of the things that we hear all the time whenever there's a, a film about an underrepresented group, like it's going to be interesting to see who does the the uh, reviews and the interviews for Regina King's film One Night in Miami, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, because one of the things that we hear whenever there's a movie that's about, you know, a racial group or, 
or women or whatever. It's like, well, who's, who are the reporters that are getting access? Who are the critics that are getting access to this? And by, by making one of the standards, like, look, we don't care who's making your movie as long as the people promoting it are diverse, then I think that that helps get a more diverse group of people seeing the movie of being interested in it you know that kind of thing um that's that's a good point yeah and then the 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 standard about the internships and apprenticeships you know clayton actually made this point in his article that he wrote for variety my friend and former boss clayton davis um in fact let me find the quote um He said, we have many masters in our industry from Steven Spielberg to Quentin Tarantino to Roger Deakins. These icons won't live forever. It is their responsibility to take their knowledge and bestow it to the next generation. This doesn't mean they invite the nephew of the studio head who already has ample opportunity to follow him on set. It's time for Hollywood to step outside of itself and look beyond the Sherman Oaks, Brentwood, and Beverly Hills zip codes for their next protégés. And so that's the thing. That's what I see is like, this still, like you said, I mean, this is still pretty easy standards to meet. And there are still films that are not going to meet them. And, but it also opens the door for people who wouldn't normally have had the opportunity to be involved or would find it much more difficult to get a foot in the door in the industry. This helps open that. So it's not even just about the movies that are being made today. These standards are also about creating a path for future filmmakers to uh to change and that's why i'm i'm really i'm really happy about this it'll be interesting to see what happens um i i did want to read another tweet that someone um someone shared because a lot of people are like oh no i saw some of the comments like oh now best picture is a is a participation trophy and people have a lot of thoughts about how like oh this is just meaningless and and now it's not going to the best film it's the most diverse film or whatever and um someone named prasanna oh shoot ren renganathan um she's an associate producer and she writes for uh, Huffington Post and and some other places and I hope I did not just totally butcher her name um, but she said I'm reeling from some responses to the Academy's diversity initiatives to be clear diversity is not at the expense of merit the assumption that because someone is from an underrepresented group they are unqualified for a role or job is wrong offensive and incredibly problematic prioritizing diversity asks for productions in the industry to reflect the world in which we live across all dimensions of diversity and to remove the real demonstrable barriers to the members of underrepresented groups from accessing opportunities in the industry. We must do something. I think she's right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked about it before how you've got straight white men and everybody else and that's kind of, and everybody else makes up a majority of the population. <laughs> right. Uh, and yet straight white men still get to be the loudest voices, still get to have the most opinions, they get to, to make the, the most art, etc. The most art that is, is treated as valuable or something like that. So it's, um, 
yeah i mean it's it's a step it's a step in the right direction and and a lot of, some of the responses that we've seen to this i think are also very uh very similar to the responses for like affirmative action uh when that was originally introduced and mm -hmm. and of course the and she's right the assumption is always that if it's about diversity, therefore you're not actually hiring the best person for the job. And I'm just like, well, isn't it magical that the best person for the job always seems to be the straight white dude? Right. Like, hmm. Right. Well, and the best person for the job is itself very subjective. Yeah. Because there are a lot of things, and, and well, it also insinuates that there's only one right way to do something. And obviously there's not, we talk, at length about how art is subjective all art is subjective and sure roger deakins is an incredible cinematographer and he does amazing things but rachel morrison's an incredible cinematographer too and sure the films that they would would film and light and everything would they would do different things but that doesn't mean that one is better than the other just that their approaches are different Yep, absolutely. I agree. Uh, yeah, so it was it was funny because one of the arguments that I got into with someone this week was like, he, he went, well, I went all the way back to the 70s before I gave up and every single Best Picture nominee would have qualified. And I'm like, uh, I would like to see your work on that. <laughs> <laughs> and so then he tried, he, he actually did share his like list that he made. And every single one of them was under the assumption that, well, publicity teams are primarily women. I'm like, okay, first uh -huh. of all, you don't know who the publicity teams were on Amadeus in the 80s, you know? <laughs> but, uh, but besides that, like, that's, you're also still missing the point. And anyway, I, I have a hard time believing that while the Academy was discussing this, because it took them two months to announce it after they announced that they were making big changes and they have new governors on their board like Ava DuVernay and and mm -hmm. some other people they have really worked to expand and, and broaden their membership and diversify their membership and I have a hard time believing they would have just done this without taking a little survey of like well what movies would have been excluded if uh -huh. we went back a couple of years so even though like i mean 1917 would have qualified it was co-written by a woman it has some department heads that were women even though there are not women on screen it's all pretty much all white men on screen it still satisfies those requirements behind the scenes and and um with and i think it did they did have a um what do you call it an apprenticeship as well it was nominated for best film for BAFTA last year so we know that it qualified under their rules um but other movies might not have I don't know about Ford v Ferrari I don't you know there's lots of them so it'd be interesting to see Green Book might have but who knows um yeah so I just I don't think that they would have announced a change like this knowing the backlash they were going to get knowing that there are members of the academy that threatened to quit over this if they really didn't see that it was going to at least start to change something. So. Yeah, that does that does all make sense. It'll be interesting to see how this develops over the next couple of years. It will. Yeah. Now, apparently <clears throat> for the 
the next two years before this gets fully implemented they do have to submit something like anybody can still be eligible for best picture but just to get used to this process they are going to have to include answers to these questions mm -hmm. um just to start to see where where we're at or like to really gauge it I well and I, I think it would also be how it must be also be helpful for productions because they're going to have to account for themselves mm -hmm. and and i'm certain that there are some productions that are just like oh yeah we would totally qualify and then might actually look at at uh, their demographics and be like, oh, actually we don't. And we thought we did, you know, there's, yeah. there's, I, I, it doesn't seem like the Academy is attempting to penalize anybody. It's, they're okay. essentially saying like, you have to meet certain standards now in or in order to qualify for this one thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, and of course some people are concerned because they're like, well, now this is going to force people to be out about their, um, their LGBTQ status or their disabilities and things. No, it doesn't. It just means that the people who are going to be counted in this have to be out. <laughs> like, doesn't mean that you have to tell your director, you know, it, it's, it's not about that. It's not about forcing people out of, out of, you know, out into the open to live how they want to, but I don't, I don't know. I think that some of the, some of the concerns, I understand where people are coming from, but I don't think that that's what the Academy is going for either. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so speaking of things that are changing, like how I did that, uh, <laughs> Kate Winslet has done a big 180. <laughs> um, yeah, so Kate Winslet is currently promoting her new movie, Ammonite, which she stars in with Saoirse Ronan, and they play two women who... I haven't seen the movie, but apparently have a relationship and it's getting mixed reviews. It premiered at, I think, Venice and at TIFF, but, um, it's getting mixed reviews primarily from straight white men. Just want to say that. weird, isn't that so strange? <laughs> uh, I even saw, I even saw a call earlier today, um, for like, so I can't find any reviews by women <laughs> at all. <laughs> Um, so if you, if you have, if you're a woman and you've written a review of this one, I'll just say, hmm, interesting, <laughs> interesting. This movie about lesbians is only being reviewed by men. Yeah. Straight I, men. <laughs> I did talk to one man who really liked it. He is not white, but he is straight and male. Um, and, uh, he really liked it, but he did say that the comparisons to Portrait of a Lady on Fire are not unfounded and will be everywhere. <laughs> so, Okay. <laughs> um look let, anyway. let the lesbians let the lesbians like be be you know throbbing on beaches like seriously like we've watched we've seen so many like heterosexual romances that are pretty much exactly the same like mm -hmm. if, if we get two films that are perfectly good films that take basically the same structure i don't care because that's fine with me it's just like exactly. oh we're female archaeologists instead of <laughs> painters all right i don't care <laughs> exactly i mean how many world war ii movies have there been exactly just like about uh, the same battles <laughs> exactly exactly it's just like oh no we have two lesbian movies that are about the same basic time period it's like oh dear yeah what shall we do it would be nice <laughs> if they started actually casting lesbians to play lesbians yeah. on screen but well i you know. i believe that uh um uh, adele hanel is a lesbian 
Oh, is she? Plays, okay. Who was in um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And, and the director is a lesbian as well, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway. Uh, but <laughs> Kate Winslet. Is not. <laughs> um, she's not that we know of. Maybe she is and we don't know. I don't know. Um, it wouldn't affect the movie's ability to be nominated for Best Picture. But anyway, uh, <laughs> she is doing interviews because she's promoting Ammonite. And somehow in the course of one of the interviews uh, with Vanity Fair, um, she, I don't, we don't know. I'm looking to see if like question before it is there. Let's see. Um, anyway, she talked a little bit about Woody Allen and Roman Polanski. And I'm trying to, if I clicked on the actual interview, because I'm trying to see, like, what was the question that led to this conversation? Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, they talk about the me too movement they talk about um stereotypes and roles and stuff like that anyway the point is that she used to defend working with roman polanski and uh woody allen and now she does not why don't you uh take it away lauren <laughs> well i I've, I've said this before and I've always been bothered at the way that actresses in particular are kind of put on the spot um, in one way or another in order to defend this. And, and Winslet, so back back when she had to, she had to defend working with, um, with Woody Allen when she made Wonder Wheel. And Wonder Wheel, if I remember correctly, came out around about the same time that, that the Woody Allen issue was coming up again. It was, it was becoming a part of the conversation again. We have to remember, Woody, this, most of the issues surrounding Woody Allen date back to the 1980s. So this is not something that is new, particularly. Uh, it, it's just something that we've begun to care about again because of the Me Too movement and because of Time's Up. Um, it's the same thing with Polanski. Polanski's, uh, the, the case against Polanski, the rape case against Polanski was back in the 1970s. Um, in the meantime, Polanski has also won an Oscar. And, uh, and Woody Allen has been roundly praised for a lot of his films. So it's, it's sort of a weird situation where you've got, so with Wonder Wheel, you've got an actress who's being interviewed or is, who, who's out promoting a film that she just made, right? And at the same time, she is being asked to defend the choice to make the film that she just made. So it seems really odd uh, to kind of assume that she's, that she's going to disown it. Um, you know, and, and I do know that people like, and, it, and I do give him credit, Timothy Chalamet, uh, more or less disowned his participation in, um, in the film that he made with Alan. Uh, and there have been different actors and actresses who have, who've talked about this, right? But I'm always really uncomfortable with this requirement that particularly actresses defend their decision to work with these directors who, again, have been known as pedophiles and rapists since for 20 years, 30 years. 
you know, this is not something that's new. This is not something that has just come up. It's just like, oh, we've just discovered that Roman Polanski was accused of rape in the 1970s. It's just like, no, we knew that Roman Polanski, he can't come back to the United States mm-hmm. because he's been accused of rape, because he has an unresolved rape case against him for fuck's sake, right? So it's, I, I, I have many mixed feelings about this because I understand the decision-making process for someone like Winslet. And I have no doubt that she had a good experience working with Woody Allen and working with Roman Polanski. There's no reason to suspect that she didn't. Okay. Um, Sorry, I found, I found what I was looking for. Do you want to read go ahead. it? Sorry, no, go ahead. Finish oh, what you were well, saying. Well, I was just going to say that... Um, I have no doubt that she, that she had a good experience with them, which doesn't excuse uh, the choice to work with people that are known rapists or known pedophiles, right? But it seems to be primarily actresses who get put on the spot on this one, um, or that even feel that they need to defend the choice. You know, people like Javier Bardem don't really feel they need to. Ewan McGregor, uh, who's worked with Roman Polanski, um, uh, Jonathan Rhys Myers, uh, Matthew Good. Um, I'm just like John C. Riley, who was in Carnage with mm-hmm. uh, um, with Kate Winslet, um, uh, Christoph Waltz, like all of these people, the, these men are very rarely asked to defend themselves about this. The actresses are, you know, and we've seen Kate Blanchett has had to defend herself, so has Kate Winslet, so has uh, Rebecca Hall, have, yeah. have basically had to say like, I'm sorry that I worked with these these directors. Uh, and it it just, it doesn't seem fair. I'm glad that she's addressing it now. And I hope that this is not just, you know, oh, she's promoting a film and she kind of wants to look good. I hope that this has act, like, people are allowed to grow and people are allowed to understand that the decisions that they've made in the past were maybe not positive decisions or they would they would prefer not to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at, at the same time, I think that it's unfair that we particularly place women in these kinds of positions where they have to defend their their choices to work with well-known and very beloved directors who have been right. beloved for years in spite of mm-hmm. that being known rapists and pedophiles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I went to the actual transcript of the interview uh, that she gave for Vanity Fair. And one good thing is that the person doing the interview, who was Julie Miller, um, did not specifically ask her about them. So that's good. They're talking about, um, they're talking about the character, they're talking about the role, they're talking about stereotypes and things. And um, uh, so Julie asks her, about if she looks back at any of her previous projects differently because of um, the controversies around this current movie um, that she's in, Ammonite. And so Kate Winslet says, well, it made me question whether in the past I was just complacent and rolled with tradition in that sort of automatic way we all do sometimes. Because they're talking about um, the sexuality of of the character um, in Ammonite and stuff. Anyway, so she talks about like, looking at some of her previous projects differently and and um when you say you wonder if you've contributed to that stereotype in the past are you thinking back to specific roles and she says no it's a general thing um it just gave me pause and then they start talking has the me too movement played any part in any of this realization and then she says i think it's only starting to play a part now um that i've seen the film 
this film that she's promoting. And then she goes on to say, it's like, what the fuck was I doing working with Woody Allen and Roman Polanski? It's unbelievable to me now how those men were held in such high regard so widely in the film industry for as long as they were. It's fucking disgraceful. And I have to take responsibility for the fact that I worked with them both. I can't turn back the clock. I'm grappling with those regrets. But what do we do if we aren't able to just be fucking truthful about all of it? So um, to Julie Miller's credit, she didn't ask her about it. But to your point, she still feels like she has to take responsibility for choices that she made in the past based on the knowledge and information that she had when, you know, in the past. And not that this information wasn't out there, but she just didn't really know or understand the full extent of of who these men were whether that was willful or just because she was young and innocent and naive you know or whatever uh whatever reason she didn't know she feels that she didn't really know how bad they were and so just what you were saying to to make her feel now like she has to uh explain that away or apologize for it for the next 20 years that's not fair to her she made those choices in the past it's over and done and why is it only like you said why is it only the women that (laughs) have to keep having these conversations well yeah and and these kinds of things come up primarily in in interviews with actresses and stuff like that that then they bring it up the the interviewer asks them a question etc that then they're like so again you know, and I haven't, I don't religiously read interviews with Ewan McGregor, but I don't recall at any point Ewan McGregor bringing this, this up voluntarily or being asked about it. Um, he worked with Roman Polanski. Uh, I, I guess uh, someone pointed out that Pierce Brosnan had mentioned it and, and says that he regrets it, which, you know, fair enough. A lot of these actors and actresses, you know, you, these are directors who are, be- like she says, they're beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, I love their films. I've said that before, right? Yeah. And and it's hard. I think that there's been an acceptability of it in the within the industry that it, maybe it's not necessarily something that you ignore, but you sort of just don't think about it, right? There's a kind of a blinder there mm-hmm. of just like, okay, well, this this was something that happened in the past. You know, it's not something that is current, um, as far as we know. It's just oh, this is something that happened in the past, and it's so it's okay. I'm just not gonna deal with that right? right and that's that's compartmentalization and that's what we kind of do naturally but it's been acceptable in hollywood that's the thing this has not this has not been something that just kate winslet did or that just kate blanchett did this is something that has been stated as being okay in hollywood for some time and you look at the films that these men have made post these accusations their careers have not suffered Mm-hmm. Their careers have been, in fact, some in some ways better as a result. Not as a result, but as as following this. Um, and, and actors don't want to work with them. So for someone like Blanchett or for someone like Winslet, um, it makes sense just like, yeah, sure, I'll work with Woody Allen. Of course, he, he makes great films. Why would I not work with Woody Allen? And so you don't necessarily think about like, oh, the, those allegations about him being a pedophile. Uh, you know, I mean, the, we, there have been jokes about Woody Allen. I watched an episode of King of the Hill the other day where they, they from like 1998, mm-hmm. where they made a joke about Woody Allen marrying his daughter. And it's just like, oh, that's funny. Also, oh my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember that news cycle <laughs> back in the 90s. Yeah. Um, anyway, but yeah, so I think that... Uh, 
I, I see this situation in two, two simultaneous ways. One, I'm glad that Kate Winslet sees now uh, what these men are about, what they've been accused of, what they have done, um, and that going forward, she will make the choice not to work with them. But I also think that we need to stop making her feel like she has to apologize for it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with it. And and again, I think that she's being honest, it looks like, um, mm-hmm. that she's saying, like, you know, her perspective has changed. And that's fair. Perspectives are allowed to change. You're allowed to yeah. be like, you're allowed to compartmentalize at a certain point and then look back on it and be like, well, I really should not have done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should have made a different choice. And yeah, so mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's such a complicated issue. And I do get tired of having to hold... You know, and we're not talking about holding people responsibility for uh, making people hold responsibility for their decisions so much as, you know, we're not talking about Kate Winslet being a, a pedophile or a rapist. We're talking about her willingness to work with someone who has been accused of pedophilia or rape. Yeah. Um, and that's a slightly different question. And it's a it's obviously a complicated question in terms of. In terms of Hollywood and in terms of film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Well, let's talk a little bit about what we've been watching lately. Have you watched anything good this week, Lauren? I've watched many good things. I keep on watching the Criterion channel. Awesome. Uh, recently, um, got to see Zama. I uh, watched Zama last yes. night, the Lucretia Martel film. And that, so that is, I really liked it, and I'm not entirely certain why. Um, but but in watching it I was actually there were a couple of places where I was reminded both of of some of Herzog's early films like um, uh, uh, The Wrath of God and um, Fitzcarraldo and stuff like that and then I was also but different like I'm not saying that this is like oh this is just her doing a riff on Herzog or anything Um, and and also Bunuel's like Mexican films stuff like Death in the Garden and and things like that both of those like kept on coming up in my mind as I was watching that film Um, yeah I really liked it I thought that it was it was great and it was humorous in sort of a distressing tragic way (laughs) that I was like oh this poor poor man but actually it's kind of his fault but I kind of feel sorry for him like just get a canoe and like row out to sea or something just do something man because you're never gonna get out of there (laughs) (laughs) so this week I um I'll talk about my one that I'm really excited about in just a minute. But um, this week I I watched a couple of movies that I should definitely have seen by now and just, you know, never have. We all have our blind spots. Don't don't send me an email. Well, send me an email, but only if it's nice. Um, But two of the ones that I watched this week that I should definitely have seen before were Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte and An American in Paris. And an American in Paris is one that it's like I only feel like I should have seen that by now because it was nominated or because it won best picture mm-hmm. <laughs> and I you know write about Oscars but um I'm trying I still have 28 that I haven't seen um but anyway Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte was funny because I was watching it and I was like oh Olivia de Havilland I thought John Fontaine was in this and then I went oh yeah I forgot to stop I never finished watching that season of Feud <laughs> 
so then of course i had to go back and look at what happened and yeah mm. um but man that was a good movie i it really liked movie. it <laughs> it was so good and um uh i mean i love betty davis i don't think i don't think i've seen her in any movie where i haven't been like she's the best you know i love her and um it was fun to see olivia de havilland in a role that was not just all sweet and nice you know and charming she had a little edge to her yeah i like i like the reversal in that mm-hmm. in that film that that like having olivia de havilland being like not quite as nice as we expect her to be exactly. we expect her to be a lot nicer than that and they're like oh my god <laughs> she just killed a guy wait did she yeah. i don't know uh what's happening oh that's a fake head oh <laughs> yeah no it was a lot of fun i really liked it so What's something else you watched this week? Uh, I also watched Working Girls, the the film. Uh, it's a film directed by Dorothy Arzner. It's one of the it's two films that list. has just been have just been put on um, on Criterion. It's a very interesting film. It's it's focused on basically on two sisters who arrive in New York during the Depression and are are trying to make it, are trying to survive uh, essentially. And they they stay at an all women uh, women's boarding house. Um, and it's one of those films that it's actually not that long. It's starts out very slow. I think the first 20 minutes are a little bit hard to get into. Um, and some of it is that they're establishing the characters of the women uh, and, and the sisters in particular. And then it begins to pick up speed. And, and by the end of it, I was like, this is great. This is wonderful. Um, you know, Arzner is an interesting director and I'm glad to see a number of her, her films becoming more widely available. I hope that this also means we're gonna get some more like high quality releases of these films. Um, but this one was really interesting because it's obviously told from a female perspective and, and it deals with things like abortion, like pregnancy, um, pregnancy out of, out of marriage, uh, and, and some relationships, the complexity of relationships. And it's dealing with these things from a very, uh, it's pre-code film, but it's dealing with these things from a very unexpected perspective. Uh, and ultimately, there there are a couple of sequences between the two sisters that is, are just gorgeous, and they're they're heart wrenching. Um, and I was like actually getting choked up, and my parents were like, "Are you okay?" I was like, "This is just so wonderful about female friendship." <laughs> um, but it's a really good film. Like, like I say, it's not that long, and uh, and I think that it takes a little bit to get into, but it's it's really worth it. So I, I do I recommend seeing that. Yeah, um, actually. I, I forgot I haven't talked about this one before, but um, speaking of Dorothy Arzner, I managed to get my hands on a copy of Sarah and Son. Thanks, Nanina. I'll get it back to you, I promise. Um, and I finally <laughs> watched it this week. And Have you seen that one? Sorry, which one is this? Sarah and Son. I have not. Okay, it's Ruth Chatterton and Frederick March, I think. Um, and so it's it was the first movie directed by a woman to be nominated for any Oscar in any category. Ruth Chatterton was nominated for Best Actress. And uh, she plays a woman who is an immigrant from Austria. I think it's Austria. And uh, she comes to New York. She ends up in a relationship with this guy, uh, gets pregnant, has a baby, and the relationship falls apart he takes off basically sells the kid and she spends years trying to get her son back and goes through a lot 
um, on the way. And um, she's, she starts off, she comes to America because she wants to, you know, make something of herself and she, you know, wants to be a big star. And eventually um, her life does change and, and uh, things, but it's, it's an interesting movie. It, it's one that like you were just talking about, like hopefully we can get some better quality releases because it's yeah. one that like it needs a restoration. Some of it was really hard to hear. Um, but the film itself, it, the story itself was, was interesting. It, it, uh, um, I, I thought some of it was a little bit odd. Some of the choices that are made are a little bit odd, but I really liked it. I thought mm -hmm. that it was, I thought that it was good. It was one that I was like, man, I wish you had seen it because I would love to talk with you about some of the, some of the themes in it and some of some of what it does. But um, but yeah, it's uh, I'm glad that I saw it, and um, I think that I haven't seen a lot of Dorothy Arzner. I'm trying to think if I've even seen any of her other movies. Uh, dance girl um, dance i've seen dance girl dance yeah mm. and so it's like she does these really interesting one of the things that i i like i mean she we know she was the only female director working in the studio system and she gets to make movies about women um so it's not just that she's making movies she's getting to make movies about women and this one it's pre-code so there are definitely some things where it's like oh wow this would not have been made five years later, ten years yeah. later you know <laughs> for sure um but yeah it's sorry i'm uh i'm trying to think of how to say what i want to say but um yeah i just i i think that this kind of it's kind of a rags to riches story and um but it's also a woman that's dealing with a lot of really difficult things she's an immigrant she's poor um she's one of the people that can easily be taken advantage of and is along the way and it's only by making something of herself not because anybody else gives it to her but because she does it that she's able to uh change her own life and i think that that's an interesting um an interesting thing to see in a film that came out in 1930. Yeah, I think Ar Arsner's films, as you're saying, are uh, very few of them have been restored. And um, I think the the major one, Criterion, recently released Dance Girl Dance. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of them, it's it's sad because there are a lot of them that are available. But like you say, they're available in, in what are basically public domain prints or very low quality prints. And so it's it's nice then to see them show up on something like the Criterion Channel. And again, whenever they sh whenever these kinds of films show up on the Criterion Channel, I'm like, oh my God, does this mean that like Criterion has these or that <laughs> Kino has these? Someone has these films, mm -hmm. which means that maybe we'll get some restorations of them. Yeah. Uh, so watch them on the Criterion Channel and show them <laughs> that there's an audience for it, and then hopefully they will do it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm holding out hope. I think that. I think that we'll get at least a few of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. What's something else you watched this week? Uh, so going from the sublime to the ridiculous. Um, <laughs> nice. So I also watched the Blood Spattered Bride, uh, which is a Italian <laughs> giallo film from like 1975 or something like that, and um, it 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 was not 
entirely what I expected. But in watching it, I was like, I turned it on and I was like, and I sort of turned away for a minute. And then when I turned back, I was just like, oh, that's a naked woman. Was there uh, a bride? There was a bride. Was she blood spattered? There's a bride. There has been a severe lack of blood spattering. Huh. Um, until like, until like the second half of the film is much more blood spattered than the first. But I was sitting there going like, where's the blood? I mean, we've got the bride, where's the blood? Uh, it's, it's a weird film. It's very giallo. Uh, I think that that's the best way that you can describe it. It's not the same. It's, it's kind of low rent. Uh, it's not quite the same level as, as, uh, some of Baba's or Argento's films, but, um, but I enjoyed it. Like it's, it's a totally random sort of retelling of the, the story of Carmilla, which is uh, kind of one of the original vampire stories, but it's like, so beyond like you're just like Carmilla like kind of waves <laughs> it at the film that's basically what it is um but yeah so a lot, lot of a lot of sex a lot of uh questionable violence and and things like that but I was like oh this is fine to watch and again so I'm I'm still I'm still uh upstate with my parents and so they're like what are you watching like the blood spattered bride <laughs> Well, that sounds fun. It was a movie. It was a movie. Well, <laughs> sounds the, like it. That is what I can say about it. <laughs> awesome. Well, the one that I watched uh, the night before last that I'm very excited about it is currently, we'll see if it finishes the weekend this way, but it is currently my favorite movie of the year, and that is Regina King's feature film directorial debut, because she's directed television before. Um one night in miami which premiered at venice and it is currently at the toronto film festival and it is so wonderful and so so good and i'm very excited about it it's um it's the night that uh cassius clay who became muhammad ali it's the night that he won the heavyweight championship in miami in february of 1964 and what we know from that night that really happened is after he won, he went to Malcolm X's hotel room at the Hampton house, um, in just outside of Miami. And the two of them were friends and they spent the, they spent some time together that evening, just talking and, and having a conversation and, and two other friends of theirs came. That's Sam Cook and Jim Brown. Sam Cook was the, legendary soul singer jim brown was a legendary football player um who became an actor and so the four of them had this like meeting conversation whatever we know that that happened we don't know what they talked about that night and this movie is uh based on a play it's the same the the playwright kent powers wrote the screenplay and it's sort of imagining what that conversation was but it's not this like fantastic wow they solved all the world's problems and then two of them were dead a year later it's um it's just this really good conversation between these four men these four very influential black men who had different ways of looking at the world and different they all wanted the same goal they all wanted equality they wanted achievement they wanted advancement um for black people but they had different ideas about how to accomplish that and they were friends and they were able to talk about those things and so 
that's what this movie is. And so most of it takes place over the course of one night. Most of it is in a single location, but it doesn't feel claustrophobic. It's very, it feels like there's a lot of movement. They're in this hotel suite and they make a lot of use of that space, you know, and sometimes someone will go outside or they'll go up to the roof or whatever, but it feels very flowing. Like the conversation flows the whole time and it's just so good. The performances are great. The writing is great. Everything about it is so, so great. And I'm really excited about this movie. I can't wait for people to see it. That's exciting. I've, I've heard good things about it so far. I'm really glad to hear that it's a good film. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, man, we got to stop being surprised when female, when actresses make movies and their first movie turns out to be so good. We got to <laughs> stop being surprised by that because women are amazing. <laughs> like I've said before, I think that we would solve the, all, any of the issues of diversity requirements just like just let women and, and, uh, and minorities make all the movies. Just exactly. no more straight men, no more straight white men can make movies. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. Solve problem. Problem solved. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and better films too. <laughs> and it was very frustrating to me watching this thinking, man, if this movie were directed by a white man, nobody would even question whether it should be nominated for best picture. Uh-huh. But because it's Regina King, people are going to have that like, well, but is it really one of the best pictures of the year? Yes. Yes, it is. I haven't even seen most of the things that are still to come. I haven't even seen Tenet, which apparently is playing at the drive-in theater by my house now. But this is definitely better than that. I can guarantee it is. And (laughs) (laughs) it's, yeah. Cool. Uh, Yes. We do need, we need women. We need people of color. We need black people making movies. White people have had their chance. It's yeah. time for them to sit down and, and just watch good stuff now. Yeah, we don't have to do anything. We can just watch these movies. It'd be great. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, all right. Anything else that you wanted to mention? No, no. I this this is it's been an interesting film watching week. <laughs> Sounds like it. What are you gonna watch this coming week? I have absolutely no idea. I do want to watch uh, uh, Bill and Ted. Yes. which i still haven't seen um so adorable <laughs> yeah i really i really want to see it i think i kind of need something like that and it's uh, silly and dumb and that's exactly why it's wonderful <laughs> i am looking forward to it i i'm gonna try to convince the the parents just like you you got you want to see this movie right like you want to see this movie <laughs> nice yeah i'm not sure what i'm seeing this week either i'm supposed to see nomadland Mm-hmm. which is the new Chloe Zhao film with Frances McDormand, which is getting very good reviews from not straight white men. Um, <laughs> go figure. And uh, yeah, and I think I'm actually supposed to see Ammonite this week too. I'm not sure. Ooh, I, I'm interested in both of those. I, mm-hmm. I've got Nomadland is also going to be playing at the New York Film Festival, so I, I'm intending on watching that. Yeah. Um, that's later on in the month though so i don't get access to it quite yet but i i do want to see ammonite mm-hmm. yeah so that's that's what we're up to um yeah so let us know folks what you've been watching and what you want to watch and what you think of the things that you've seen um yeah all right and i think that's gonna wrap things up for uh 
for this week. Thank you so much for listening, especially we want to say a huge thank you to our patrons, Heather, Adriana, the Crooked Table Podcast, Michael, James, Katie, Cariata, Mason, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Sharon, Steve, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much for supporting the show. If you would like to be among them, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen name and uh, sign up to contribute, help us keep the lights on. Um, and because running a podcast is actually not that cheap it turns out but uh anyway but so we appreciate everybody who helps keep things going here um if you would like to buy some cool stuff like fun face masks we've got them in our stores zazzle.com slash citizen name pod you can also send a couple of dollars our way if you don't want a commitment and don't want a cool face mask for your face um co-fi.com slash citizen name and of course you can reach out to us in lots of different ways we are on twitter and instagram at citizen name pod you can find us on facebook sometimes uh facebook.com slash citizen dame i did take a little break from it this week because i just had had enough and yeah i should make that a permanent break but i guess i'm not ready yet Uh, you can also email us, citizendamepod at gmail.com, and visit our official website, citizendamepod.com, where Lauren will be covering New York Film Festival very, very soon. I am working my way through, well, I'm going to start working my way through the Agnes Marta collection, <laughs> because I really want to write about that, and I've got some other fun stuff to to write about as well so yeah so go there and check that out you can also find us individually lauren where are you i am on twitter and instagram at lh business and i am on twitter and instagram at karen m peterson so thanks so much for listening and we will catch you next time bye what do you see madam peel i see you and i on the scene something lurking in the background Yes, it comes closer. I see you attacked by two large... What? Things. I dispose of them? I do dispose of them. No, I do.